In this mini-series, we have the pleasure of conversing with Dr. Stuart Casey Maslin on the topic of international disarmament law. He is joined by Ms. Dominica de Beaufort, Senior Policy Officer with the Security and Law Program at the GCSP, where she is also the course director of the International Disarmament Law Executive Course and Virtual Learning Journey. So Stuart, in the last episode, we discussed the history and definition of international disarmament law. And you also explained uh, the term global disarmament treaty that you coined uh, in the book, A Guide to International Disarmament Law. And we concluded saying that there are basically five global disarmament treaties, namely the Biological Weapons Convention, the Chemical Weapons Convention, the Anti-Personal Mind Ban Convention, the Convention on Cluster Munitions, and then finally the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. So looking at those five treaties, um, would you say that they have things in common or what are the core features of these treaties? They do. I think probably the central uh, issue of a disarmament treaty is a prohibition on stockpiling and a corresponding obligation to destroy uh, stockpiles. Um, but to, in order to ensure that no new weapons are produced, there's a, a prohibition on production, on development, and to prevent proliferation, there's a, a prohibition on transfer. There are some small exceptions. For example, under a couple of the treaties, you're allowed to transfer weapons for the purpose of their destruction. If another state has better facilities to destroy those weapons, that's the case under the Anti-Personnel Mind Ban Convention and the Convention on uh, Cluster Munitions. Um, and in all cases, except for uh, the Biological Weapons Convention, use of the weapon is also prohibited. Okay, so the prohibition on the use is a core element of global disarmament treaties. And uh, it would be interesting now to, to, to understand a bit better how uh, such a ban on the use is addressed in global disarmament treaties. So slightly differently, um, mm -hmm. although in the Anti-Personnel Mind Man Convention and Convention on Cluster Munitions and uh, most recently the Treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, all use is prohibited. In the Biological Weapons Convention, use is not mentioned specifically, although the state's parties have said, of course, use is prohibited, even though we don't actually say it. If you can't acquire, produce, or stockpile a weapon, then you certainly can't use it. The Chemical Weapons Convention is a slightly different uh, case. Although all use of weapons in warfare of chemical weapons is, is prohibited, there is a specific exception for the use of certain uh, chemical uh, weapons in situations of law enforcement. And there we're thinking particularly about riot control agents, meaning tear gas. They may not be used as a method of warfare, but they can be used under limited circumstances in ordinary law enforcement. Yeah, that's interesting that a provision uh, for situations of law enforcement was included in the Chemical Weapons Convention. Interesting point. So now I would like to speak a bit more about uh, developing weapons. We can find provisions on developing weapons in global disarmament treaties, but is there actually a formal definition of the term development? No, there's no formal definition of the, of the term uh, development, but it's generally accepted that it concerns all the activities that lead up to the point where production actually starts. 
So that would be uh, uh, research that's conducted, and it would also be the testing of uh, weapons, uh, of, of prototype weapons. Now, in certain treaties, for example, uh, in the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, there is a separate specific prohibition on testing, on explosive uh, testing. But that is also prohibited already under the prohibition on development. Now, when speaking about um, developing new weapons, this makes me actually think about uh, new technologies, about emerging technologies. And I know um, a group of governmental experts has been discussing uh, these issues under the Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons. Is there anything interesting to report? Have you maybe been following it? Yeah, so uh, there's a particular discussion that has been ongoing now for uh, about five years in relation to what are called lethal autonomous weapons system. And underpinning such weapons systems is artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. What that means is in the past, weapons tended to be directed and used by a person. It might be a person pressing a button or it might be a person pulling a trigger. What is different because of the huge advance in technologies such as uh, artificial intelligence is the ability of algorithms, of computer algorithms, to determine who is a lawful target and who then can be killed or uh, attacked. That's obviously a very significant change. Now, the problem in addressing development of a lethal autonomous weapon system is that artificial intelligence is all around us. We use it every day for a variety of very peaceful uh, purposes. The robot that cleans, uh, for example, that vacuums your house has a certain uh, basic uh, intelligence. Many industrial processes use increasingly artificial intelligence. So how, if there's an agreement to ban these weapons, how you're going to control the development is a very difficult question. And I don't think any of us have the answer yet. Yes, exactly. Um, that's uh, a real debate uh, and maybe not uh, only a legal, but also a, a, an ethical debate, uh, whether to, to ban uh, lethal autonomous weapons altogether or whether we should better say, well, um, these weapons uh, will be developed anyway. So maybe it is much better to, to regulate them in an ethical way. So, yeah, and we would also discuss uh, these questions uh, during our courses. And I can assure you that we always have uh, heated debates when it comes to lethal autonomous weapons. You've raised a very interesting point. And here, here's one where um, perhaps I'm a bit of an outlier in terms <laughs> of international law. Um, there are many people um, that believe for genuine, valid reasons that these weapons should never be deployed, that there is a an ethical as well as a legal impediment to ever allowing these weapons to be fielded. Let me suggest that there is also a contrary point of view, that without underplaying the dangers and the risks, the level of respect with international humanitarian law is so abject, so appalling in general, that perhaps a computer that doesn't feel anger, doesn't feel fear, uh, that responds to instructions, perhaps that could save lives. And I realize that that is a very controversial point of view. Yes, it, it is a controversial topic. I, I agree. And actually, this makes me think of a reality check public discussion that we organized with Professor Ashley Deeks last year. And uh, if I remember correctly, the title was War Algorithms, Who Will Decide in Future Conflict? 
we spoke about uh, algorithms and uh, the, the question that we asked ourselves was, can we develop algorithms uh, capable of being applied consistently with international law? And I must say it, it was really very, very interesting. And I would like to recommend to anyone interested in the topic to watch this public discussion that we recorded and that you can find on our GCSP YouTube channel. Linked to this topic, um, I would also like to mention that there are provisions in, 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 in treaties that state that for peaceful purposes, development would be still possible. Uh, could you develop on that a bit? So it's not so much the right to develop weapons, it's the right to develop uh, material or devices or substances that could be used as weapons, but actually are intended for peaceful purposes. So for example, the, the Chemical Weapons Convention bans, as the name suggests, chemical weapons, but we use chemical substances every day. We use it uh, to protect ourselves. Indeed, as everyone knows, we are hoping that a vaccine will be developed to Im either immunize or reduce the impact of coronavirus. That's clearly a chemical uh, agent, and it is perfectly right and proper that states have the right to research, develop, and uh, use those substances. So the important thing is the purpose to which these agents are put, whether it be chemical or uh, biological. If they are used to protect people, to assist people, uh, but not for warfare, then that is legitimate. And in the treaties, the Biological and the Chemical Weapons Convention, it's made explicit that that is uh, acceptable. There's also, uh, with respect to nuclear weapons, a very genuine use of nuclear energy. Of course, it could be used for nuclear weapons, but it is also used for the purpose, for example, of heating people's homes. And now thinking for an instance about COVID-19 and, and biological weapons, could we imagine that the state says, well, we have the right to develop substances for peaceful purposes, but um, actually in reality, uh, what they will do, they will explore ways to, to develop uh, a new weapon. Could we imagine that? Well, it's, it, it's slightly difficult because in order to um, develop immunization, vaccination, treatment mechanisms, you need the original chemical agent. So, for example, in the United Kingdom, Porton Down, which used to be the UK's chemical weapons laboratory, now engages in a peaceful research looking at how outbreaks of biological agents uh, that cause uh, significant disease could be addressed that looks at treatments for uh, the use of chemical weapons. And as we've seen over the last few years, chemical weapons continue to be used. Now, looking at, at the five treaties that, that you've just mentioned, do you see any trends in, in their design and in their way they have addressed uh, specific activities in the past decades? Yes, and I think the Chemical Weapons Convention is the foundation of this. The Chemical Weapons Convention prohibits most use, not all use, but most use, and then production, transfer, uh, and uh, of course, stockpiling. Subsequently, it's been accepted that when you ban a weapon, you should really ban it at all times and in all circumstances, not just in armed conflict, but also in peacetime for law enforcement uh, purposes. But subsequent treaties uh, to the Chemical Weapons Convention have gone a little bit further. They've accepted that it's not enough to just deal with the weapon, you also have to deal with the effects of the weapon. So uh, the Anti-Personnel Mind Ban Convention started what I would regard as a new trend and uh, which 
requires assistance to the victims, those that have already been harmed in the past, and then what we might call environmental remediation. In the case of uh, mines and cluster munition remnants, of course, that's the clearance of land. In terms of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, that's de dealing with land that has been irradiated as a result of use or testing of nuclear weapons. That's all we have now for this episode. Thank you to Dominica de Beaufort and Dr. Stuart Casey Maslin. Tune into our next episode and hear all of the latest insights on international peace and security. Or head to our website and discover our upcoming events, webinars, and courses that you can get involved in. Or just stay tuned and let the next episode start automatically in this playlist. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple iTunes, follow us on Spotify and SoundCloud, and across all of our social media channels, which you can find in the episode description. I'm Ashley Mueller with the Geneva Center for Security Policy, and until next time, bye for now. <laughs>